Welcome to episode number 69 of the Beak Curiosity Podcast. I'm your host, Abigail Carlson. Today's episode is with John Beter, a history professor from Boise State University. He spent a lot of his time thinking about what makes a national identity, specifically the U.S.'s, and what that should be based upon. We talked about what a non-American's idea of who an American is. We talked about race and how much space that should take up when it comes to a national identity, or a personal identity for that matter. All sorts of fun stuff like that. I felt very out of my depth in this conversation, which is good. I like to feel stretched like that. That being said, if I said something dumb, oops, and I'm trying to get better. With that said, let's get right into it. Okay, well, why don't uh, you just start with a quick bio about you, and then we'll get into whatever you wanted to bring to the table today. Yeah, I don't know how much detail to go into, but let me give you, I'll give you some basics. Uh, Boise, Boise, Idaho, uh, native of Idaho, Boise born and raised, um, grew up here in the North End, uh, which now is a, a very expensive place to live in. And when I was growing up, was not at all. Everybody was leaving the North End. Um, I'm a Basque ancestry on my on my mother's side. Father is a German-Irish transplant from Minnesota who came out here and got stationed at Mount Romero First Base, fell in love with my mother, and uh, and here we are. I'm one of five siblings. Um, so anyway, born and raised here, went to uh, Catholic schools, went to St. Joseph's, went to Bishop Kelly, uh, went to uh, school in Minnesota, which my where my father was from. So that was uh, really, I think, kind of the first time of, of leaving home within the United States. Um, came back, got a teaching certificate, taught high school for about uh, 10 years, 10, 11 years, and then um, had the itch to do some more, some more serious study. So uh, in the meantime, I, I did get a master's in history at Boise State, um, but there was, uh, we had lived overseas when I was growing up, when I was in seventh grade. Um, my father started Boise State's first studies abroad program. And that, uh, Abigail, was what was what really changed everything for me. So living over there, living outside the United States, just, just a whole host of things. That's, that's frankly what I'd love to visit with you more about. But anyway, that ultimately led to doing, wanting to do some more work in history, trying to understand uh, the kind of deep questions that I had. And so that meant I ended up going out to Boston College. I did my PhD out there and then came back and um, was lucky enough to get a position at Boise State. And so I've been at Boise State now for for 17 years. Uh, so a long time. So high school. But so I kept leaving Boise. My, the short synopsis is Boise, Idaho, born and raised with a lot of movement outside of that. Yeah. Both living overseas for a total of about three years and then living uh, in Minnesota, undergraduate, and then East Coast in Boston for graduate. So that's a quick thumbnail sketch. Cool. Cool. Well, let me catch the listeners up on what we talked about. I had emailed no. you to just say, hey, tell me a really cool story from history that I probably don't know. Yeah. And you said, how about I just tell you about why you like history um, because of where you had lived overseas. So yeah. that's and I'll just ask questions as you go. So, yeah, go ahead. Well, I so I, I did not grow up a big history fan. You know, some people love military history or they love Civil War. They love Civil War stuff. That that was really not me. I mean, I grew up in a, a father was a professor. So 
books were around and education was important and those things were, but really I did not get hooked on history until I, until we lived overseas. So um, I'll tell you a little bit about my own narrative, but I think for me, it's really about how I came to fall in love with history and realized that the power of history is enormous. I just didn't have a sense of that, um, but it's really what hooked me and got me going because there were these deep fundamental questions that I knew I wanted to know more about. Um, and that's what got me going. So as a seventh grader, had never traveled at all. Father came home and said, we're going to go live in the Basque country, the northern part of Spain for a year. Uh, basketball was, you know, sports was all I was interested in. So I wasn't particularly excited about uh, not being there for that year. We went to a small town in the northern part called Oñati. There were about 10,000 people. We were the first Americans that they had ever seen. Um, and so that was an experience. They they would just stare at us when we walked around in town. Um, it, it, they, it was just a, a really intense experience for me. Um, two things, I think two big, big things came out of that that I wouldn't have been able to articulate then, but that ultimately got me into history and got me studying this. And those two things were, it was the first time I was a foreigner. It was the first time I had to think about what does it really mean to be an American and I was seventh grade, and so I didn't really have a whole lot of sophisticated answers to it. But it was the first time I had really con- been confronted with those questions. I'd never really thought about that at all. So in seventh grade, my parents, the, the theory was that there's five of us, and they were putting us in different schools, trying to get us in, you know, chances to learn language and get immersed in the culture. They dropped me off, and they, they, they first started me in fourth grade because that, that, that thinking was, I guess, and maybe it was something, maybe they were saying something about my mental aptitude. I don't know, but they put, us, uh, they put me in, in fourth grade because I, I had no Spanish. I had no language at all. Mm-hmm. I knew a little bit of Basque, a handful of Basque words, but I didn't speak Spanish at all. And so the, the idea was they're going to put me in, in a lower grade to kind of give me some basic language skills. And then I would, I would move my way back up to seventh grade, which is, it was essentially what happened. I got there at recess. That, that it's etched in my mind. It's one of this, those episodes, and I don't have that many. I don't have a great memory. But I, we pulled up into this small town plaza. You can imagine this kind of European city. Everything's pedestrian, the old narrow streets, those uh, uh, cobblestone walkways. And we pulled up. And uh, it was my mom and my dad and this uh, priest administrator who they had worked with to get the program organized. And we got out of the car and it was recess. And they all uh, huddled around me, all the students, because they knew I was coming to class. Again, I'd never seen an American. So it was like it was like bugs on a light. It just (laughs) they just circled around me all at recess. And I was really, I was big for a, a seventh grader and I was ridiculously big for a fourth grader. You yeah. Know? You could kind of see this bubble above their head that I imagined later on, obviously, like, my God, everything is big in America because look at the size of this fourth grader, you know? <laughs> and, but here's the kind of crazy thing that happened and I'll never forget it. What they ended up doing was kind of circling around me and playing cowboys and Indians. Interesting. And they kept on chanting, saying Americano, Americano. And they go, oh, oh, they were doing yeah. this kind of circling around stuff. And I was like, what? I mean, that day, you know, it was hard. I had tears going on my phone. It was just, but as I reflected on that, a couple of things uh, on that story, and then what happened for me the, the, over the course of that year. And that is, 
being an American, but of Irish and German, but really of Basque ancestry. That was the kind of dominant identity I grew up with. I was trying to understand, well, what does that really mean? Like, what does it mean to be American? And But I, I feel this connection from my mother's side and my grandparents, this connection with the old country. And so I got fascinated by this thing, Abigail, is that what the heck is America really trying to do here? This is one of the craziest things I've ever heard of in my life. Still is. Trying to take the world's populations and make a country out of it. There's, there's nobody that's, there's no civilization that's done it on this scale in world history, right? On this scale. There's other, other countries that are immigrant countries, but not to the extent that we are. Yeah. And so I got fascinated by that question. And I got fascinated because I left America and that gave me the perspective to try and understand what America was. The second part, and it's one that's connected to it, is that why in the world were these kids who lived 7,000 miles away, why would they know cowboys and Indians? Like, what the, where, where is that coming from, right? They're, they're from, well, they're Basque. They're from the northern part. They, they're, they're in school. They have to speak Spanish because Franco's outlawed the Basque language. It was a time of severe oppression. But what I realized is that eight out of the 10 movies, there was one movie theater, one channel on TV, but eight out of the 10 movies were, were American movies. And seven out of those eight were Western movies. And so what I became fascinated with is the idea of the American West in providing an identity that is so ingrained in us that um, it's hard for us to kind of separate that story about what American identity is. So I'm trying to truncate it here, but those are the two big things, Abigail, that ultimately got me to end up pursuing a PhD, which was never on my radar, never. It was really trying to understand the formation of America, an immigrant country, and then the power of the area that you and I have grown up in, the power of the American West, in trying to provide a story, a, 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 a mythological and real story about what it means to be an American, the power of the American West in defining that. Anyway, there's a lot, but those that's in a thumb, just a thumbnail sketch. That's really, I think, are the two biggest questions that I've been pursuing for a long, long time. And um, it's what got me interested in it. And what still, I still just love researching and trying to understand today. So why don't I pause there? Okay. So what have you come up with? <laughs> <laughs> it's a very, very good question. Um, here's what I've come up with. Uh, let's talk about uh, talk about the immigration story. Going to be no surprise. It's a pendulum that swings back and forth. It's one that defines who we are, and yet we we have never stopped wrestling with it. We're at a, another contentious time period of of immigration history. But that's really nothing new. It's a, a repeat of kind of episodes that, that have gone on. Um, I'd love to kind of pull that apart with you if you want to a little bit more. Sure. But it really is, um, you know, if you try and summarize it, uh, if I was trying to summarize it most succinctly, what I, what it, like you say, well, what have I learned? Um, 
we have a we have a it's not our official motto it's our unofficial motto which is e pluribus unum you know mm-hmm. uh, that's on our money uh, yeah exactly um out of many one mm-hmm. that is a really short pithy it's a really kind of easy way to try and summarize it and and it's incredibly complex and so what i've learned is that for the, about the first 400 years 450 years of our country's history we spent so much time trying to understand and create an unum, uh, a one. Um, and that in the last 50 years or so, um, the, the pluribus part of it has begun to be emphasized uh, alongside of the unum. And that makes for great tension. That makes for, for uh, a pulling apart in some way or it, it, that, that I think part of that um, what we're seeing today, the tension of what we're living today is related to that. Which part of the motto are we going to emphasize? We've always had these two pieces. We always will. Mm-hmm. But but which one do we tend to emphasize more? And what we've seen is really since the 60s, uh, a shift that's moved, that's moved away towards just unum, unum, unum. And we've been looking at the plurality of that. And so... Um, it's a fascinating time to be alive and to be witnessing that, but it's um, it's full of tension, which is what at the root of what history is. And the tension that you and I feel in our own lives as we're living out our stories, and it's the collective tension that we feel when we do the same thing. So that would be one of the big things I think that I track and try to understand. We just talk a little bit maybe about the related part of it. Um, and that is the idea of the American West and those values that we that we associate that with that. And that's it's a it's a value of a rugged individualism. It's a value of, of, of freedom and a sense of democracy and a sense of local control and a sense of not feeling overwhelmed or overpowered. There, there can be a, an anti-government or an anti-federal stronghold on that. It's, uh, it's one of space and frontier, and that being an American is somehow tied to, um, to settling that frontier, and that the stories of all of this, often connected to, to Western living, to cowboys, to ranching, to that kind of uh, Marlboro Man image that we have, um, while really not the the physical reality of how most of us live our lives today, the overwhelming majority, the heyday of the cowboy was really only about, depending the shortest, maybe 20 years, the longest, maybe 40 years. And yet the shelf life of that idea of the, of the myth um, is, it's, it's just enormously power, powerful. It's powerful for us, for how we understand ourselves. It's connected to our foreign policy. It's connected to, um, to our economy. So uh, we export the idea of the American West. Um, it's a billion-dollar industry. And, um, and yet, for a mythology to work, it has to be... Uh, real enough. In other words, it has to be true. If it's absolutely made up, 
it won't have any sustaining element in the culture, right? It just mm-hmm. won't bite. It won't last. So it has to be somewhat real. At the same time, it's a myth. It's not fully real. And yet, here's what I, this is what I would say. It's kind of like a, a, a bad Western. No matter how many times that you shoot it, you knock it down, you can't get rid of it. You can't get rid of it. It's, it's too powerful an idea of what it is that we want uh, to tell ourselves about who we are, that it become, I would say, uh, central to America's understanding. Not the only thing for sure, but, but, but super, super powerful. So those are, those are kind of simplistic answers, relative simplistic answers to, to really big, big questions. But um, I'm fascinated by, those ideas and how much those ideas have power over the life that you and I live, whether or not we, we, we really realize it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I don't love cowboy movies. I've always thought they're really cheesy, but yeah, yeah, the, the individualism, the anti-government, all of that stuff is very, very core. And I think even me where I grew up was much more of a country setting. Yeah. I mean, I lived we didn't have a farm, but our house was in the middle of farms. And so, like, it's just like, we are by ourselves. Why do you think you should tell us what to do? Kind of attitude. Sure. Just just based on geography. You know, I can totally see how living in town, those attitudes would just naturally be shifted just a little. Right, right. Look at the, look at the advertising. Look at, look at, um, well, the story, I mean, like you say, very few people make their livings as, as as cowboys, but that image, the image of the Western brand, is it's incredibly powerful. So let me give you a, a goofy example. Um, if you go, you know, there's a Disney World in uh, in France. Uh, Disney's, you know, has different satellite mm-hmm. spots. The most popular spot in Disney France is Frontierland. It's the number one most. It's the number one most visited, um, you know, kind of area or ride or thing that's that's connected to it. Um, my mother-in-law is from the Basque Country and came over here and absolutely fell in love with westerns and the whole western idea. Her and her husband, my father-in-law, came across on a bus out here. And she just kept on looking for. Where are all the where are the cowboys? Where are the Indians? It's um, it's a powerful image, and it's and we've we've like I say that the Western weather. I'm not a big West. I I mean I enjoy some of them, but um, but they're really super powerful ideas, and they've been told and retold uh, the dime store novels and and the the power of of Western movies, Gunsmoke, Old Westerns, Bonanza, all these other things that for earlier generations grew up in. We still see, we still see, uh, you know, them replaying. Um, when you, just a question for you, when you grew up, let me ask you the two big questions. Did you grow up in a, uh, I think, I think Payette is not a tremendously diverse place, but did you grow up with families from different parts of the world, immigrant families? And then, so why don't you answer, and did you grow up with, um, 
with this idea of kind of Western values, you know, the rugged individualism, don't tell us what to do. We need to rely on ourselves or we need to kind of, how would you answer those? Well, the first one, um, not quote diverse and that we had lots of people, at least that I knew of from lots of different countries, but our area has a lot of Hispanics. So very, I mean, I don't know the exact numbers. Nobody quote me, but I know Ontario, which is really where the shopping of our area is. And then Payette and Fruitland are like the residential suburbs of Ontario. But Ontario, I think is 60 or 70% Hispanic. Wow. And so I maybe in today, in today's world, I think diversity just means not white. So maybe, but not necessarily. Um, let's see. As for growing up with Western values, I would say very, very much. Part of it is I was homeschooled, which is an, an even bigger step of, of individualism and anti-government or just not big government, you know, yeah. ideas just within the home. And, but I didn't really care when I was little until I was an adult, you know, you just, this is life and whatever. And in fact, I thought I was really missing out on going to school because I I wanted to have friends and there were lots of them available right there, but that was really the main reason. Um, But yeah, so yeah, lots of individualism, lots of pro-America stuff for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think... I have a question. I wonder if like this idea of the of other people visiting America and coming out and looking for the cowboys and Indians. Like that seems that seems really strange to me because when I see the way America talks about us now and at least people like me who grew up in these small towns, it feels a lot more like they're looking down on us. And rather like the city is where it's at. And if you don't have a college education and if you don't live in LA or New York or Austin, then are you stupid? (laughs) So that's how it feels now. Um, So anyway, maybe that individualistic media and stuff has been more popular outside of America than inside of America for a bit. Yeah. No, no, no. It's good. It's a good point. It's a good observation. Um, no, I think I think there's obviously there is a one one story that you know that that tells America. Um, there are there are many right and many going simultaneously. And clearly, more people live in an urban setting than in a rural setting. If we just look at America, uh, the mid nineteen twenties is the first time that we shifted from more people that lived on farming communities more people that lived in urban areas. And so when you shift and the majority of your population begins to live in urban areas, the perception and the stories go with that. Right? Yeah. And so clearly, clearly there, there isn't um, one, one story that, um, that dominates. I think, uh, I think nevertheless, there's uh, let me try to answer it this way in the research that I've done. Um, as you and I, as the world gets, more and more homogenized. So um, after World War II, when we had geared up for mass production on a scale that we that we had not been able to do before, 
So when we made airplanes and we made munitions and we had all the clothing factories, it was, I would argue, kind of the kind of the capstone time period of of the Industrial Revolution, right, that, that had started in 1700s, you know, early 1800s, but then really ratcheted up in the late 19th century and then took off in the 20th. When we, when we were able to mass produce items on a scale like we had never done before, when we began to create homes that looked similar, right, those kinds of neighborhoods with a kind of cookie cutter, classic <laughs> 50s homes like that, what, what we found is that it became the kind of urban areas and then eventually suburban areas. What we found is that you and I, I was, as humans, we have this weird combination of things that we want, which is we want to both be like other people and not be like other people. We want to have our own identity. We want to fit in, be a part of a group, and we also want to stand alone outside of it. And so I think what what you see is that kind of tug of war playing out as well. So that if you're wearing the same shirt that I'm wearing, if we're wearing the same clothes, if we're all listening to the same music, if we look at homes and our homes almost look exactly the same, we're living in neighborhoods and we all we're all watching the same show. Do you know what I mean? There becomes this homogeneity where we go, well, what is it that makes us who? What is it that makes us any different, right? And so. I'm going to go back to, so there's a lot of things that can, and it's not just, but let me kind of give you a couple of examples that, that go back to those earlier things I talk about. Well, one way that we've done it is by talking, is by looking at ethnic identity or racial identity, right? So I'm from, and especially for, for those that are, right, I'm Irish, I'm Italian, I'm Mexican, I'm whatever. It was a way for them to say, yeah, this is what makes me different than just this kind of standard person, right? The other thing that might make me different is um, I'm a cowboy. I'm a rancher. I believe in that. I dress like that. I wear a cowboy hat. Even though I work in the city and I'm as city as anybody else, I'm going to put on some of the trappings that connect me back to this romantic story about Rugged and individual about do it yourself, you know. DYI is just totally American. This idea that, right? I mean, we have stores, we have we we have television programs, we have all kinds of things that build it yourself, do it on your own. It, in other words, right? We're not living. You and I, I'm not living as a rancher. I don't think you are either. But I, that there's still some some enduring values. And I would, I would argue as much a, a romantic story about that, because when the whole world feels exactly the same and it's all, we're all eight to five and we all have little cards and we all go, what is it that makes it, makes us feel authentic, that makes us feel like us, that makes us feel connected to a story with a little bit of romance to it. It's not just this kind of factory living of everybody doing it the same. And so I think in some ways that's that that there's kind of a couple examples of how we've lived through this tension that we always feel, I would argue, that we feel that is common to the human experiences. I want to belong and I want to stand out. And so I think both of those things have helped us. Urban settings, no doubt. One last story. Immigrants, there's a there's a kind of a famous story, a famous way that, that goes like this about immigration. Um you know, immigrants always hear that 
in America, the, the roads are paved with gold, right? They're paved in gold. That's always the kind of standard story of, man, America, you know, the streets there are paved in gold. But when they come to America, immigrants come to America, they realized they're not paved in gold. And in some areas, they're not paved at all. And then what immigrants find out is it's their job to pave them, right? They, they, they realize that they come in, immigrants that don't have large levels of education, if they don't have language abilities, end up doing lower lower tiered manual labor, right? What am I trying to get at is what motivates us? What's the romance? What's the idea that makes us want to do something that motivates us to move, that motivates us to immigrate, that motivates us to build something on our own, right? To do a mm-hmm. podcast. What, what is it that, that pushes us? Because motivation is, has to be connected to ideas, to something, something that, that, gets us out of bed in the morning, gets us. And those stories, I think that some of the stories I've, I've hit at provide, can provide that, that meaning for us that helps motivate us. Let me pause there. That, that makes sense? Any of that resonate? Yeah, yeah, for sure. It is interesting that you say people think America is paved with gold and then they move here and find out they have to build those roads. I mean, it's true that the the lower... The lower education level, maybe lower um, financial status, usually puts you in the more manual labor type work, which is, um, I mean, that just tends to be how it is. I don't think that's an American thing, just how it is. But, so I don't really have a problem with it. As long as people can move forward. When you get in societies where if you're born in that class, you are you die in that class, and so will your, so will your kids. That's where the problem is. Anyway, I got talking and I forgot what I was going to say. But I think you hit on it. I'll I'll talk for a little bit. Maybe your idea will come <laughs> okay. back. No, I think there's there's nothing more American than that kind of rags the riches story, right? Yeah. That that this is a land of opportunity. This is a place where you can come, and if you work hard enough you'll be able to do things that you would never be able to do in, in, in the country of origin. I mean, that I think is, I think that's the reality. You know, I believe in that story. I also think that it's really challenging to be able to do in, in a lot of places because, um, because it, you know, it's dependent on opportunities dependent on a whole host of things, but that's, that's the narrative that we have. You know, that's the story that, that drives us. I think it's part of the whole American, what it means to be American, that, that notion, that idea. Yeah. What were you going to say or what were you going to ask? Um, well, I was just thinking, I totally agree. I just can't figure out why more and more what we see on TV is telling us the opposite, at least in America. If you're, if you're black, you'll never make it because we're just racist people here. The system is against you if you're an immigrant. Like, more and more I'm seeing the opposite of that. So, I don't know what's going on. Well, you know, the the new books coming out, the white fragilities, all of those things, talking about how we have to bring black and Hispanic people in, or people of color as the new... PC term is because 
if we don't bring them in, then they won't get there on their own. We have to give them that that opportunity. You white person have had your time. You shut up and go to the corner. There's a lot of that now. And it's weird. It's weird. And it doesn't seem it doesn't seem like it's it's encouraging you to move forward with your own actions. Like what can you do in your life to move up? You can, if you're athletically talented, and a lot of people do this, really a lot of people do, join the football team and get a scholarship and go to college. Lots of that is possible. Anyway, I feel like I'm rambling a lot. But (laughs) the point is, what you're saying seems to be true from a few decades ago of this idea of individualism. And you can, if you're an immigrant, you can come here and you can make it and work it up. Now, it doesn't feel like that. I still think it's just as true. But I just don't know why we aren't, why what we're told from the government and from mostly just big media, you know, the news, liberal Facebook, the things that they push are a lot more of you'll you'll never make it. We have to tear down the system first. A lot more of that kind of talk than work hard and you can do it. Let me ask you, let me ask you this question, and I, I do it often with my students. I've thought about it myself for quite a bit. Um, well, if I say, uh, well, let me just, I'll try it kind of two different okay. ways. When I say American, what's the image that you get in your, in your mind? Just describe that. I would say uh, jeans. Okay. You guys? Um, Go ahead. Tell me, you mean jeans as in physical jeans or jeans as in Levi's jeans? Levi's. Okay, gotcha. Levi's. Man, I don't know. I mean, probably white, but not necessarily. Okay. Because there's a lot of other people here too. Hmm. Baseball cap, maybe. Okay. I'm trying to think around here, um, very cowboy here in this particular area, but just American in general. Gosh, I don't know. I I just don't know. I can't put myself as somebody from Georgia, not Georgia, America, Georgia in Eastern Europe, and just say, what does an American look like? Having a hard time. Yeah. Yeah. So what you just, yeah, and it's really, I mean, obviously it's a huge question. It's really, it's a tough one to answer. But it's interesting because um, when I ask my students that, is it a particular profile that you imagine, you know, like this is what an American looks like? Or is it, um, is it a kind of a process or a set of values? Um, mostly, I, I'll be honest, most of it for me and, and what I found, and this is not my original thing, but if you, if you look at studies, most of us um, imagine when they see American, we get an image of ourselves. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, you know, I'm white, obviously. So that's the kind of, I tend to see a profile of, of me and, and others like me, right? Um, interestingly enough, when they do this with minorities, minority, minorities also also see a white person. <laughs> they, <laughs> they tend to see, 
they don't imagine themselves in the same way that that whites do, right? The kind of classic white Anglo-Saxon Protestant view, which has been, sure. you know, which has been the, where the power structure was for so long. Um, they don't they don't see it. They, they see they see white as well. And so it's an interesting thing about is being an American um, profile, right? That kind of that kind of image that still has um, a lot of staying power. Or is it about, or is it um, a set of values, right? Is it a process about of self-government, of de- democracy, of uh, rights of individuals, of rights of the collective? You know, that our whole kind of system of government that we've created here that um, has tried to be a unifying code that we agree to while, just like I said before, we're trying to take the world's populations and make a country out of it. It's the craziest experiment. That's why a lot of times textbooks are called the American experiment. Because nobody's done this before, right? Yeah. It's it's crazy. I, I say that because it's it's kind of a good check for me anyway to think, yeah, what do I think that is is America a profile, right? Which tends to be, like we say, tend to be dominated by by a white perspective because that's what's dominated over time, you know, settlers and all the rest. Or is it a process that that um, you know that continues to develop based on a series? Is it profile or is it a set of principles? And I think that's a struggle that we're we're still really living with, right? Yeah. Principles of government, self determination, and all of that versus a profile of a particular group of people that you know that have have been here and have. have in power longer anyway we are wrestling with those two things yeah that makes sense yeah Yeah. i can see it yeah and so that i think is something um that's not new to us but we swing back and forth and it's 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 always there's always lively tension amongst those things yeah Hmm. yeah yeah okay man where do we go from here well, let me ask you a question. Can I, can I ask an immigrant question? Sure. That kind of from your lived experience, like you talked about, and again, this might be contentious, but what the heck, we should be able to talk about these things. So you talked about, you know, uh, Mexicans and Hispanic populations, especially Ontario. How has that gone in, um, in your community? You know, um, is, it, is it separated? Is it, has it been a melting pot? Has it been, um, you know, it's it's gone pretty. Well, I mean, gone pretty well. Obviously, these are complex things. But how how would you how how do you perceive it from from your perspective? Um. Well, you can definitely tell where there are different neighborhoods within these towns where there are a lot more lower income folks. Um, I would not say that has anything to do with your skin color whatsoever. We have a lot of white trash around here. But I I do think it goes it's gone really well. Like um I have not I personally have never witnessed a racist thing happen in real life. It's never been a thing. Uh we have actually quite a few Muslim refugees that live here too. I think it's been really fine. No problems whatsoever. Get along really well. The only thing is, a lot of times, a lot of the Hispanics don't speak English very well. So that 
if there's going to be a problem, it's the language barrier, and that's about it, really. I do know that Ontario has a lot of gangs, and I think actually per capita, Ontario is the most dangerous city in Oregon, like most murders per capita, so that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, overall, my experience has been great. No yeah. problems. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you think if I just did uh, interview 10 people, you think most, I guess it depended on the 10 people I interviewed, but what would you say uh, that most people would say? What do you think most, well, let's just do half and half. If I interviewed five Mexicans, you know, Hispanic ancestry and five, let's just say whites, Anglos from whatever background, what's your hunch about what they would say about how, that, you know, kind of microcosm of the American experiment played out there? I think overall pretty well. I think, I mean, I know that at least for me and my family, we have a lot of respect for the how the Mexican culture is hard work. They work so stinking hard all of the time. And so we have a lot of respect for that. Um I'd say overall, maybe we'd wish they'd work a little bit harder at learning English because, I mean, I would love to talk to people. I just can't understand you. Maybe I should learn Spanish. Um, from the other perspective, I would say pretty well, other than, again, maybe you guys could make a bigger effort to understand us kind of a thing. They might say that. Mm-hmm. They might, there might be some who are resentful that they end up having the higher labor jobs. They tend to do a lot more field type work. Um, more in construction tends to be still white people here. Um, oh, I also forgot. We actually have quite a few Japanese here. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> when World War Two was going on and the government did the whole, well, if you're Japanese, you have to go to the prison camp thing. That whole nice period of American history. Uh, The governor of Ontario said, you can come here and be free here. And so a a lot of Japanese moved in here. Mm -hmm. I'd forgotten about that. Anyway, am I answering your question? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Right, because the American experiment that we're talking about, it really it plays out on a macro countrywide level, but it plays out in Ontario and Payette. Yeah. Right? I mean, they're all we're all small examples of bringing in people from different backgrounds and trying to see if we can live peacefully alongside of each other. You know, that's what I'm saying. Is it a profile or a set of principles? When it's a profile, if profile dominates there's going to be separation and maybe at the most extreme violence. If principles dominate, there's a much greater chance that the a peaceful coexistence, it doesn't mean there's not going to be tension. It just means that there's more of a process because all agree to these kind of principles of what, of how this thing is going to play out. And so it's yeah. profile and principles. And um, I'm always curious just to hear, you know, kind of how that, how that plays out. Um, because, you know, there's there's thousands of payettes around around the U.S. or versions of it, right? Yeah. East Coast or whatever, but but smaller communities outside of 
bigger areas that, you know, that, that a lot of people, that's, that's their life. That's obviously how it goes. So, no, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated to hear about, yeah, about your, you know, about your perceptions of it, because that's the way million, that's the way million of Americans are experiencing a version of that same thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. If you have ideas as your main bond versus race, unless you can have all one race, it will get unstable pretty quick, which is not really a thing in our world anymore, unless at least not in the quote West, like big West. Right. Um, Let's see. But this is interesting. I'm going to talk about the Bible for a second. So uh, Jesus called his 12 disciples and they came from many, many different political factions. There were the zealots. They wanted to overthrow the the Roman rule. There were um, (laughs) some of the Jews, like uh, Matthew had just gone over to the Roman side and was considered a traitor. There were people who just wanted to stay out of it completely. Um, There's one other group that I'm forgetting about in there. And, And he grabbed 12 of these people who did not agree with any political or ideological thing and said, okay, you guys are going to get along and I am going to be the thing that you have in common and none of this other stuff matters and you're going to go out into the world when I'm gone and this is the value. It's not what is your political association. It's not your race. This is for the Gentiles and the Jews. Anyway, so that coming with ideas really do trump race more than anything as far as bringing unity. But then you have to go over, well, what ideas are we going to center around? Political ideas tend to also separate, maybe not as strong, but still pretty strong. So you still have to find something that transcends political and societal beliefs to unify around. And that's where God comes in, in my opinion. Yeah, no, it's, um, I think, boy, you hit on a big, big, big topic there, right? Is that what, what, if we're talking about profiles or principles and we're talking about principles, right? What are the principles that we talk about that hold us together? And what you've described there, the, the, the history of Christianity in America, well, history of Christianity, you, you go back even further of the original Christianity is one of, right? A diverse group of 12 from different backgrounds, right? And the others that, that were along with that 12 that came from all different kinds of backgrounds, so what was the unifying factor? The unifying factor there was Christianity, what becomes Christianity, right? That that was going to transcend differences that had, that, that had and were separating people so fundamentally, enough to go over to, go to battle with each other, right? So what, is it, what are the principles when we talk about principles that transcend um, the particulars of settings? And you've described what is so transcendent about that time, which is a Christian message that says you're different from me, 
but we have this value of Christianity in common that holds us together, right? In America, this is what I think is another area of how it's both held us together and is a point of tension is because, once again, world's population coming together, which means world's religions yes. coming together, right? Which is we, we come from a, a Protestant, right? That white Anglo-Saxon Protestant background. That's, that's the formative part of our country. That's part of it's, it's part of our founding. And yet our founding fathers, and I would say our founding mothers, the influencers of the early times, said, um, we're not going to we're not going to dictate a particular religion. We're going to separate those two things out. But again, based on a set of democratic principles within that. And I think that has been, you've just identified another really big part is that um, it's both something that's really unified us and made for greater tension because it's kind of, a, a, I would argue, a repeat of what you're talking about with Jesus, the story person of Jesus and the 12 apostles he successfully, they successfully transcended their differences for something larger, right? We are battling it out of um, transitioning or, or uh, recognizing our differences. At our best, I think we recognize our differences and say, it's okay. There are larger principles at play. At our worst, I think we say, you're not like me. Get the hell out of here. I mean, we, 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 we aren't able to transcend the differences in the same way that Jesus and those 12 disciples were at that time. That make any sense? What yeah. do you think? Yeah, I think so. And I mean, you're right. Like the Bill of Rights was supposed to be this, this higher reigning principle, which I mean, seems obvious to me, but I, some people don't think those are good principles. And I suppose I'd like to find out why. Around here, I don't have a ton of access to people who don't agree with that. So, I mean, if you know somebody, hook me up. I'll talk to them. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, you have the the problems of, you know, let's take the, the easy one, freedom of speech, which is, well, of course, you should be free to say what you say. Well, until it starts causing problems, are you still free to say that? Right. Well, and what's the point of having something that protects your ability to say something if you can't say something that can cause problems? Like saying I love you to everybody is not something that you have to worry about protecting, right? It's when you start getting people that start saying bad things. Yeah. Yeah, um, Absolutely. Can I ask you a, another question, Abigail, just in our conversation here um, and kind of bring us back to, I mean, it, we've been talking about it all the way along, but let me ask you this in your own life. Um, I think what I was trying to, what I was trying to give you examples of at the very beginning were, were um, really ways of talking about the power of history. Okay. Like, like who cares about history? Why study it? Why is it important? What, what are we, what, what is it really all about? And I didn't know. I just had lived experiences that that made me kind of kind of, kind of whack me over the head and say, "Hey, what's this all about?" You know, me and and me trying to figure it out. That's that's really 
just like talking about stories of immigration, stories of the American West. But but how about for you? Well, you, you mentioned in, in our in our emails, you go, yeah, I'm really interested in history. And um, so what 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 interests you about history? Tell me a little bit about about the power of history or what do you what do you think about it? Well, I really like history because number one, I like to think about specific people who lived, not just about oh yeah, those civilizations that lived in you know wouldn't yes. um, what's his what's his name? <laughs> Sorry, Genghis Khan was coming through. It's not just like oh yeah, we're going to learn about Genghis Khan. It's like well, what did the villages? who are about to be overrun by Genghis Khan. What what was that like? I like to think about really, really small-scale things like that. Uh, overwhelmingly, I really am into World War II history. Hmm. I think that's a fairly common era for people to pick. But, yeah. I mean, I'm not interested in the battles and the military part. That is not what's interesting. I'm just... What grabs my attention is how can a population just go with something like that. Because in World War II, between active military action and then just government, um, like the communist revolution in uh, Russia and China, you have like a hundred million people killed. And what leads populations to do that? That seems like, doesn't somewhere along this along the way say, "Hey, wait a second, can we stop?" And so that is what I'm really interested about: is how these things affect individual people, and then why aren't those people able to do anything about it? And why yeah. why are there things that happen that seem so beyond anyone's control, but yet? If a few people just did something, it would be within your control. I don't know. Have you come up with any answers? No. <laughs> Other well, than people are people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Have you been reading lately um, about this is this is one of the most divided times that we've had since the American Civil War? Yeah, you- I've been hearing a lot of that stuff. Yeah. What do you think of that? I think it's real if you're on Twitter, but if you go outside and actually talk to somebody, it's not. You're not worried that we're going to have... Well, we might, but I think overwhelmingly the division is... It's pushed along by the internet. I think, I mean, if my neighbor had really, really strong feelings about how I ought to live in regards to COVID safety. If she does have that feeling, she hasn't, you know, knocked on my door to tell me about it. And so I think in real life, it's way less divided than what it appears. Do you, what's the, what's the um, power of history in, because um, you were talking about like World War II and, it's the tremendous amount of suffering and, and, and leading up to it, right? So the Russian Revolution in the early part of the 20th century, late part of the 19th, early part of the 20th yeah. century. World, you can't really understand World War II unless you look at World War I. You think about the rise of Hitler and the 
unbelievable number of deaths caused. If you just look at World War II on the whole, it's on a scale that you just can't believe. You think, well, how did that really happen? You know, how does that stuff? And you said, why? You said something like, like why? Why couldn't just a few people um, band together and you know do something about it? Well, I'm just kind of curious about, and 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 you know, I think you feel like there there's division, but the division may be more like you say on the internet, or it may be more of a of a um, well of a of a kind of a social media attack. It's not necessarily you know kind of rooted in it. Um, do you think that? Well, let me just kind of ask you the question about what's the, is there a power of the, of history in the midst of all of this? In other words, what's at the root of the division that's happening within social media? Is that related to history at all? Or is it something that's just kind of unique to our time period here now? This kind of, even if it's just an internet division, is it just happening there or is it, yeah, is it somehow somehow tied to the, the power of history and the power of ideas um, that are playing out today? I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, you just have access to people that you wouldn't have had access to, like me and you talking, wouldn't have happened. So there's lots of people coming together who wouldn't have had to deal with their conflicting ideas before. Um. Yeah, I'd say overwhelmingly it's new, but I mean, clearly we've seen horrible things and divisions and civil wars happen in the past. Um, oh, goodness. I'm struggling today. I've lost my train of thought again. Okay. <laughs> Don't you think? I mean, I think what happens in every age, I agree with you. We've had civil wars and we've had divisions yeah. and everything. It's as old as, as Adam and Eve. It's as, it's as old as it gets, Right. But it does feel like different eras have different um, different iterations of this, different versions of this. So what I mean is there's new types of technology that change society, that change warfare, that change whatever, yeah. World War One, World War Two. We had all kinds of divisions, but they go back to, you know, catapulting rocks and the way that we – and the same kinds of things that we have today is we just have – right, we have access to information – and, and the ability to spread information at a speed um, and volume that we just haven't had before in history. And so when we have that, there's this unsettled time period when we're trying to figure out how do we use that? How is it being used well? How is it being abused? Yeah. And I, it feels like we're in one of those periods again today where, well, look at you and I, right? We're we're together in a new format. We just wouldn't, we would not have had this conversation. But you have technology. You have an interest in being able to do it, and so here we are talking yeah. in ways that we just wouldn't, we wouldn't have before. Yeah. And so, new technology, new ways of dealing with it, bring new ways of telling stories, which create new ways, new ideas, new spreading of those ideas. And then, and that can be a, a, a wonderfully advantageous thing, educational opportunity for both of us, and a destabilizer if it's used inappropriately or used to right do all kinds of other things. Yeah, well, and that's interesting because like Zoom is a very neutral medium. 
I mean, it is literally just here so you and I can talk to each other. Yeah. However, social media does not work like that. They do incentivize more angry behavior. And even if um even if the platform itself was neutral, overwhelmingly people get more response from followers if it's a hot take or something angry than if they said Wow, look at how beautiful it is outside today. You know, like one thing. And so then that little part in and of itself can accentuate the negatives. And then once you add in that Facebook and Twitter knows that the more angry people are, the longer they're on it, then that makes it even worse. I mean, I heard that Facebook even admitted to doing an experiment to just see if they could make people depressed. And it worked. But wow. I mean, so we're dealing with people who are, who are also experimenting with us, and we don't know it. And so I think it gets back to your idea: is you know why can't just a handful of people why why can't they do something about it? And I think some would say, "Wow, when you're fighting that kind of power, that it's 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 a really challenging thing." Just what you've described right there, right? It, it feels like you're you're fighting the wind. It's just, it's everywhere and it's hard to try and you don't know where to, where to, how to really control it, how to, you know, uh, how to fight it, how to fight back against it. Yeah. Yeah. Let me, let me, can I just, I, I know, but I think the conversation is back and forth. Let me ask you some just kind of real basic things about history. Can I? Sure. And we'll, you know, I'll go back to it. Okay. Um, wh- what is history? How, how, how do you describe that? Um, it's, Anything that's happened before us, but I mean, give and take 20 years. I think I heard that it takes 20 years before you can start to understand the history where it's not still politically being manipulated. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like we're just starting to get to where before the year 2000, we can kind of understand that era without the political narratives trying to be pushed in to the history of it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would, yeah, no, I, I would agree with you. I think, I think historians would probably say, I mean, the earliest they would say is it takes at least one generation. Like you talk about 20 years to be able to look back. I think another thing be kind of common numbers to say, well, you need a little bit more distance. They say maybe 50 years before you can have a, a kind of a dispassionate look at it, you know, because yeah. one generation you're still, you're still kind of connected. Um what do you think? What, what's the power of it? Like, who cares about history? It's it's old stuff that's happened. Um, <laughs> well, that's why, what I thought in high school. Why should care about it? Well, that's what I thought in high school, but exactly, it's it's exactly. access. It's access to knowledge and wisdom that you wouldn't have until you lived everything. And I'm not going to live everything. And there are going to be things that will come up that if I just relied wholly on myself to know how to approach upcoming situations, I would probably fail a hundred percent of them as a as a guess. But but give me access to my parents' history and their experiences and give me access to generations ago history. Then, then I can learn to see patterns in before they're coming. I also think history is really good because 
there's a lot of bad in history. Over And overwhelmingly, that's what gets remembered. Just like with the social media thing, that's what catches on. But, I mean, you can you can go for a run and you can try to be like, I'm going to run 20 miles. And this is my goal. And I want to run a nine-minute mile. And that's fine and good. But, I mean, if you have <laughs> a lion chasing you, you're going to run those 20 miles and it'll be faster than nine minutes. So having... Having a point that you know you don't want to end up is really helpful. And if you're starting with a blank slate, you might not know. I mean, why why would communism be a bad idea? I don't know. Just get along and share. Yeah, that sounds great. What about the communist revolutions in Russia and China? If you don't have that, that thing that guide that keeps you away from the edge of the cliff, I think you're in trouble. That's why history is important. Yeah. I think, um, let me ask you one other question. And then I might, if you will, I might answer some of my own questions. How was your, how was your experience growing up about learning history? Do you feel like you're, and it's not to condemn them, but you feel like your history teachers were, you know, really good and that you've got a good um, background in history or history was kind of an afterthought at the school or at at trade you were homeschooled. It was maybe not that important. How did you feel about like the, the, yeah, the formation that you got around studying of history? Well, I didn't like it mostly. I think part of the problem was I was often, oops, given textbooks instead of just like um, books specifically, whether it was a historical nonfiction. And so textbooks are so stinking dry. Um, and I th- I feel like we learned a lot more about American history than other history. And it really wasn't until <laughs> I graduated and moved out and I I read The Hunger Games, and I don't know why, but that book just was like, oh, books are exciting. And so then, just since then, I've read a lot and have really gravitated towards World War II. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd say I'd say what you described is, is, is very common. So part of my job at Boise State is to work with history teachers, future history teachers at the, at the secondary level. Um, and... And yeah, most, and when I talk with students, most of them say, I, I don't remember, I didn't really like history. I don't remember very much of what I learned. It was mostly textbook driven and pretty boring. And, um, you know, it's just, and and yet, and yet history becomes, uh, the older the people get, the more, if you look at, the more interesting they, interested they get in history. Because yeah. it is a common part of, of being human right? Your story, my story, our collective stories are, are essential to what, to understanding ourselves. There, there's, there's no other way to do it. One of the first things when you get to meet friends, when you get to meet people, you, you may not be consciously aware of it, but what you're really, but what you end up doing is, is, is doing an interview with them, a historical interview, like, who are you? Where do you come from? What do you enjoy doing? Where's your friend? You know, you, you, you do that. You, we just do that with each other because to know another, to know another human being 
is to know their background. It's to know the other stuff that they bring with them. And I'd argue to some degree, the closer the relationship, the more you understand who they are and, mm-hmm. and what's, what's made them, right? The, their, the, their formation, all, all those different things without it, you know, all those things that, that they bring to them, right? So I, I get to know you and if I, as I get to know you deeper, I, I know more of all of those experiences that have formed you. Yeah. When I what I realized this is what this has been one of the big most significant paradigm shifts for me the way that I thought history was and the way that I that I think about history now. Growing up, I just thought history was this, um, and I still I still to some degree agree with this that it was just kind of a, a log of what happened. It was just a kind of series of facts that happened in the past. And I learned these facts. The teacher usually kind of gave me these facts. And then I tended to give the facts back. And to some degree, I, I still agree with it. I, I think there are facts about what happened in the past. And that those are, uh, you know, those are, are things that we, that are anchors. Those are things that we hold to be true. This Declaration of Independence, right? The, those, the, anyway, the, those kinds of collective stories and individual things. But the older, the older I got, the more I realized, yeah, but, but history is also about which facts we choose to hold on to, which facts do, which facts do we use to tell our story. Um, history, I would argue, is more a debate about what happened rather than just a, 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 a chronology of what happened. So let me give you an example. If I stopped, if, or if you stopped this recording so far, and we said, okay, um, Abigail, I want you to write down what, the, what happened in the conversation with John. John, I want you to write down what happened, right? Um, and we, you and I both wrote for 15 minutes, whatever. We both wrote for the same time period. What do you and I both know? Um, are our documents going to look exactly the same? Definitely not. Yeah. They aren't. They aren't, are they? They're going to be my perception and your perspective, your perception of what's happened, right? Yeah. Now, we've both experienced the same thing, though, right? You and I have both been on. We both hopped on about 10 o'clock. We've been talking for an hour and 15 minutes. So we've both experienced the same thing. And yet, when you record it and when I record it, we're going to record it differently, right? So, so what is history really history about? Well, of course, it's about those recordings because that's how we track the experiences that we've had, right? We write them down. We identify certain things. Some things we could, like, we could verify, right? You could go back and we could find, okay, what is the Hispanic population in Ontario? We could find that out by doing research. But a whole bunch of the other stuff is what you and I identify as what's important, right? And so let me just give you, I'll just boil it down to, to, to a super simple way of doing it. Same kind of thing. I grew up with five siblings. My brother and I get in a fight. And the fight, you know, we're little kids and we're throwing pine cones at each other. And the next thing you know, we're wrestling around and we're popping. And mom comes out and goes, knock it off, you know. 
And then she says, hey, Dave, what happened? And Dave tells his story. And then he goes, John, what happened? And I go, no, that's not what happened. This is what happened. Da, 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 da. He hit me first, da, 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 all the rest <laughs> of it, right? And the two stories don't match, do they? No. Yeah. And in some ways, it's as simple as that, right? It's as simple as that. I think sometimes we think of history as, oh, no, it's just this set of stuff, right? It's just a set of facts. Yeah, but who's telling the facts, right? And which facts are they telling? And that's where the real power is. So when my brother says, or my mom says, what happened? My brother goes, da, 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 da. I go, no way. You know, that's not happening. This, this, and this has happened. It really is, I would say, the power of history is which facts are we using and who's the one that gets to do that. And whoever has that microphone, like you do, has some power that a lot of other people don't. And I didn't think, uh, it took me a long time before I think I really understood the power of history because of that. Um, It's as simple as growing up with siblings and getting two different stories. And it's as complicated as times that we're dealing with today, the power of social media and, and power to tell different kinds of story. Yeah. Does that make sense to you at all? Yeah, totally, totally. Because, I mean, like, are we going to Russia, to war with Russia? I don't know. Right. I don't think anybody knows because it is just a gobbled up mess. Yeah, for sure. Right. Right. And if it does, what is it that provokes that battle, right? And and who's going to tell that story? Russia's going to tell one side of the story. We're going to tell a different side of the story. Oh, Yeah. And it's the battle about who gets control of it, who gets the most people to believe, you know, their their side of it, their their perspective of it. Anyway, I really realize it's much more about who gets the microphone and who gets to who gets to control the story, right? Versus um, a, an absolute truth, capital T, that that is the absolute truth of what happened, right? I always thought growing up that that's what we were looking for. Big T, capital truth, this is exactly what happened. And what I found is that what we really try and do is we gather as much small T's as we can to try and come up with a story that is as much a capital T as we can. But it's just like you and I with, I don't know if you've got siblings, but it's just like, you know, when my brother and I fought, I had a different story than he did, and it was not the same one. We were, you know, we we just looked at it differently. Anyway, yeah. it's simplistic, but I think it, it, it that we have to understand that if we're trying to understand what the power of history is in our for ourselves, for you and I. Mm-hmm. Like, what's what's the story that you tell yourself about who you are, and that I tell myself, and um, and we and what's the power that we tell ourselves collectively? Yeah. There's big power in that. A lot, for sure. Yeah. And I, I'll i go into a spiral of not knowing anything if I think too long about, am I just a product of everything that's being shown to me? <laughs> Have I never thought a real thought? Yeah. Right. yeah. As long as I avoid thinking those kinds of things, I can stay somewhat level. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's some, I know. I know what you mean. You can just, you can get lost in it. I guess here's the other thing. Um, you're... I think it, the the podcast is called Peak Curiosity. Right? Yeah, you're a curious person. Mm-hmm. You want to ask questions and want to know, and not everybody is. Yeah, and that's where I commend you. That's what I was trying to say earlier because um, curiosity is 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 great. 
It's what allows you to, to understand the world. It's to understand what, what it ultimately to understand yourself better, but not everybody's curious. Not everybody's Indeed, curious. Indeed, like my husband. <laughs> <laughs> what makes you, what makes you get curious? Um, I think it was at that point where, uh, the stereotypical point of you're a little bit older than 20 and you realize you don't actually know anything. Um, that was probably, I mean, I just like, I don't know anything. I would like to know some things. Um, yeah. And so, I've also really learned that, like you've said, is there's lots of stories. There can be facts to be found, but stories overwhelmingly have the power to change things. And, and so that a lot more early on, because I was interviewing more friends and people I knew, I would dig a lot more into like stories and why do you think the way you do? I mean, you could pull out any strong opinion that I have, <laughs> which there are quite a few of them. And you could ask me for a couple facts about why, but overwhelmingly it's going to be, well, these are some events that kind of make this story arc of why I've come to this decision. Um, anyway, so being curious about people and coming into, so what exactly is motivating these actions? What is motivating these thoughts and this worldview? That's a lot of what I'm interested in. That's it. That's it. I mean, that, boy, if I could have, I would like to play that for my class and for the students in my class, because that's the difference is, is if you have a disposition of curiosity and, and wanting to know that, or if you have, um, or if you're fixed and, and, and this is what I think, and I don't want to know anything else. I don't want to ask anything else because this is who I am. And this is, this is, this is it. And, and your willingness, somewhere along the line, you said, no, I'm going I'm to have some different conversations. Well, like you said, you wake up, you're 20, and you realize, well, I don't really know anything. And um, so let's go find some things out. And the only way you do that is by, <laughs> by being curious. Yeah. 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 It's, it's essential. But, um, but it takes – not everybody does that, and it takes um, – because it, isn't it kind of uncomfortable sometimes? Oh, yeah. It's really uncomfortable. You find out all sorts of things that you didn't want to know, <laughs> especially about yourself. Exactly. And then you have to, you have to make sense out of that, right? Yeah. You have to figure out, well, well, now what do I do, right? Yeah. And what you've described on a personal level is exactly the same thing on a collective level, right? Yeah. We don't, nobody, I don't want to find out bad things that America's done. I, I, I want it all to be good. I want it to all be fertile, happily ever after, right? And yet I know I'm no saint. I know I've got all kinds of, right? I, mean, I know I've got things that I've done really well and things that I have not, I'm not proud of at all. And so why, I, as, a, as a single human being, why would it be any different for us collectively? Things that sure. we feel like are, are wonderful, that have really brought out the very best in us and things that have not brought out the best in us at all. Yeah. You know, that's just, to me, that's just part of the, of the human experience. Right. So one person said it to me this way, and I think it's, it's a really good one. As human beings, they only get one life. Right. But as human beings that, that are interested in history, 
we get thousands or millions of lives because we get to understand that we get to read about, think about, hear about the stories of so many other people's lives and those and the, and the wisdom and the, the lessons learned and those elements up from their lives, we get a chance to absorb or to, to make them part of our own. And that's rich. You yeah. Know? That's really rich. Yeah. 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 Well, Abigail, have we done it? Have we have we talked about it all the stuff that you wanted to talk about? I've really enjoyed it. I hope you have. Yes, I, I have too. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good place to wrap up for sure. And it's been a good enough amount of time anyway. Yeah. Um normally at the end of my podcast I ask a couple questions that are just silly and sure. so whatever. Yeah. Um before I do that, do you have anything that you want to pitch to my listeners to, I mean, are you interested in Facebook friends or Twitter followers? None of those? I don't have a Twitter account, but I am on Facebook and I'd love it. I'd love to hear whatever questions. So here's, I guess it's just this, what I would say is that it's what I've said to you, Abigail. I, I applaud you because you're curious. Um, have you seen, uh, maybe not, uh, there's this, have you heard of or seen this uh, TV series? I was on, I think it was on Apple, Ted Lasso. About I this. haven't seen it, but I've been hearing all sorts of things. Yeah. Well, if you're interested in it, I just, I really enjoyed it. It's a really, it's a really interesting series. Um, but anyway, in, in one of the episodes of that, one of my favorite episodes, um, he talks about, uh, he's going up against this kind of bully guy and they're playing darts and it's it's within the context of of this larger story that's playing out and he's kind of talking with the bully and he he says to the guy um you know in my life and he he keeps throwing the darts people uh people uh underestimated me all along they um they didn't uh they took for granted knowing who i was without really knowing me at all and he said, what I found out in my life is um, it's a good thing. Rather than being judgmental, I try to be curious. Rather than me saying, I know who you are and I know anything about you and me putting a label on you, I try to be curious. And then because the bully is kind of, you know, being a bully. And um, I just thought it was a great line. I thought it was a great line. And I say that to you because this is what I, and to your listeners, is it's a wonderful thing to be curious because it means that you're comfortable enough to ask questions and to have a conversation with somebody else. And if there's something that we really need today, it's that for people to be curious enough to want to have a conversation with somebody else which means I'm comfortable enough that this isn't going to totally rock my boat. It might kind of be unsettling. I may not agree with that person, but the ability to have conversations is just hugely important. So again, I commend you and I try and say it myself. Can we be open enough, curious enough to want to learn from others, which is really what I think is at the core of learning, especially the core, the, the core of learning about history. So hats off to you and your listeners for being willing to venture out. Yeah. Yeah. Thank great. you. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. All right. Let's get to these silly questions. Let's do it. Okay. Do you prefer the office or parks and rec? 
Oh, good, good question. I'd say um, Parks and Rec. Yeah. That's neat. Mine. Yeah. Good stuff. Um, okay. So in Genesis chapters 1 through 11, we have the creation through the flood. Mm-hmm. Do you read that as history or mythology? Um, I read them as, uh, I read them as mythology, historical mythology, but I would say mythology. Yes. Yes. Ways for us to understand. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, do you think that there are aliens? Really good question. I work with, a. uh, uh I work with an astronomer who's convinced that there's life outside of astronomer voice data work that's convinced that we're that there's life outside of, of planet Earth and that we're gonna know about it um he thinks you know within the next 50 years. Um gosh. I hate to say I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Um I would say I would say right now no. Okay. I don't know. It's one of the great questions. I love it. How about you? How did you answer that? Uh, I do think there's yeah. life out there. Yeah. My it stronger seems, buddy would say yes, absolutely. Mostly it just seems pretty crazy that as big as yeah. even our galaxy is, that we're the only thing that's alive, that doesn't seem real. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I um, get it. Okay, so the last one is... Yeah. Who or what inspires you to be your best? Wow. What a question. Uh, oh, my first is just the most basic, my mother, you know? I mean, the, the, my parents, but I would say my mother between the two of them. Um, boy, and then the list gets really long after that. But day in, day out, she's the most formative person in my life. And... Um, yeah, one of the one of the a, a person with the most integrity, some of the most integrity that I've known. So I asked myself, you know, what would what would my mother do? You know, uh, no, she was by far the most I would say just the steadiest and longest, uh, most impactful person for me. It's a great question. Thank you, thank you. you know? Well, thank you for joining me. I'm glad I caught you at a good time in your sabbatical. Yeah. Yeah, no, you caught me at a great time. It's Friday and it's sunny outside. So what the heck? Yeah. Good day. All yeah. right. All right. Good to visit. Yes, you too. Okay. Take care. Yep. See ya. Bye. If you're a fan of Peak Curiosity and want to see it continue, and you also want to join an online book club, I highly recommend you sign up for my Patreon page. You can find it at patreon.com slash peakcuriosity, and the link will also be in the description of this podcast. Thank you, and have a good day.